स्वामी निखिलानंद इज अ डिसाइपल ऑफ जगत गुरु श्री कृपालुजी महाराज ही रिजाइड्स एट राधा माधव धाम इन ऑस्टिन टेक्सस व्हिच इज द यूएस आश्रम ऑफ जगत गुरु कृपालु परिषद ही ट्रैवल्स अमेरिका प्रीचिंग द फिलॉसफी ऑफ सनातन धर्म एज टॉट बाय श्री कृपालुजी महाराज इन दिस सीरीज ऑफ लेक्चर्स स्वामी निखिलानंद एक्सप्लेन्स द थ्री पाथ्स टू गॉड कर्म ज्ञान एंड भक्ति He reveals the scriptural teachings behind each path and tells which path is the best one to follow. This series that I'm giving this year during the Akhanda Ramayan here at Hanuman Mandir is going to be a 15-part series. Last year I was here for 14 days. So in fact what I'm going to cover this year is going to be the continuation of where we left off last year. So it's been a whole year. Let me give you a quick review of what I covered last year. I began by explaining that according to the Vedic mantra, tameva viditvati mrityumeti nanya pantha vidyate anaya. There are three things that exist. Brahma jeev maya Brahma means God, Jeev means the souls and Maya means the cosmic energy that produces the whole universe. These three things exist eternally. So this Vedic mantra refers to all three by saying that only by knowing him can he cross over it. He being the souls knowing him the one we have to know is god and cross over it it being maya we refer to maya as it because maya is a lifeless energy god is chetan thus we refer to god with he or she and of course souls are chetan now only by knowing god can the soul cross over maya by knowing god the soul becomes eternally blissful free from suffering free from the cycle of birth and death which is caused by maya so by crossing over maya we're relieved from all forms of suffering and by attaining god we receive unlimited divine knowledge and divine bliss i also explained to you that this is the ultimate desire of every soul that every soul wants god and only god and nothing but god meaning that every soul is eternally astic and cannot become nostic even after millions of lifetimes of trying if someone wanted to they could not become atheist everybody not only believes in god but wants god so i proved this to you by explaining that god being the form of bliss is called anand anand means perfect happiness and souls are ansh of god ansh means a part of him so every ansh has a natural tendency to desire his anshi anshi means the one to whom you belong so we are all little infinitesimal souls and we all belong to god 
So he is our one and only Anshi, and each one of us is an Anch, a spark of divine power. So it's the nature of every Anch to be attracted to his Anshi. So every soul is naturally drawn towards God. And since God is happiness, this explains why every living being wants to be happy. <laughs> because we are anch of Ananda Brahm. We are anch of God who is the form of happiness. Thus, it is our nature to desire happiness. And desiring happiness is the same as desiring God. Is there a soul in existence who doesn't desire happiness? No. Every soul desires happiness. Thus, every soul desires God, proving that every soul is an eternal theist, an eternal ostic, not only believing in God, but desiring only God. I also explained to you that only having received a human birth can a soul get the chance to attain God. So although souls have existed since eternity, as has God, as has Maya, yet souls don't get a chance to attain God in every life, only in those lifetimes where they're given a human birth. So I explained to you that the human life form is called karma yoni. So as a human, we get the chance to perform karma, and if we so choose, with this power to perform karma, we could even attain the ultimate goal, which is to attain God and become perfectly happy forever. But if we're born in any other species, our karma doesn't count for anything. Even the celestial gods can't perform karma, thus even they desire to be born on this earth planet as a human being so that they can get a chance to attain God. So we understood that attaining God is the ultimate goal of every soul and that is only possible as a human being and if we don't accomplish that in this life since we've received a human birth there's no telling how long it will be before we get another human birth. In our next life there's no guarantee of being born human. We could have to go in other species for untold amount of lifetimes. Eventually we would get another human birth and we would find ourselves back in the same situation if we're lucky, being exposed to this complete spiritual knowledge so that we know what the goal of our life is and how to attain it. And again we would have a golden opportunity. So where we are now, although many of us complain about different facets of our life, the position we find ourselves in right now cannot be beat. We should never complain. We received a human birth and we have the knowledge, the eternal knowledge of the Vedas, Gita, Ramayana, Puranas, to guide us. So we are in the best position to attain the ultimate goal of our life in this life. Then we learned that according to these same scriptures who tell us that we must find God in this life, we must know God in this life, those same scriptures told us that no one can know God. Because God is divine and our mind, our very faculty of knowing, is material. 
So how can you know a divine, absolute, unlimited God with a material, limited, faulty intellect? How can you see God when God is divine and you have material eyes? So we have no means of attaining God or knowing God or seeing God. Then we found out that despite this fact, many souls, uncountable souls, have attained God. How did they do it? Through God's grace. Those who received God's grace, through God's grace they got a divine mind, divine intellect, divine senses, and through that they were able to know God and experience God. So only through God's grace can a soul know him. So then we ask the question that, well, if everything is dependent on God's grace, then what is there left for us to do? God must be doing everything then. He's all-powerful, isn't he? So, God, when you decide to grace me with God-realization, then it will be all good, and until then, why should I worry about becoming God-realized in this life? It's up to you. You grace me if you want me to be God-realized. So we took this to an extreme and asked the question, is God responsible for everything, including our own thoughts and actions? And we learned that no, according to our scriptures, God gives life to every soul and having done that has given us the power to think and perform actions but does not control our thoughts or actions. God merely having given us that power takes note of what we do and then gives us the consequences. But he does not perform our actions for us. So, we understood through this that we have to do something in order to receive God's grace. Those souls who became saints like Tulsidas, Mira, Guru Nanak, Tukaram, they attained God by receiving God's grace. So it must mean that they did something to receive God's grace and whatever that thing is, we haven't done it. So there must be a condition required that we have to fulfill in order to receive God's grace. So we again went into the scriptures and found out that that condition is surrender. Those who surrender to God receive God's grace and through his grace they know him and they cross over Maya. So surrender is the condition if you surrender, you receive God's grace. If you don't surrender, you don't get God's grace. So at this point, we ask the question, does this mean that God's grace is not unconditional? He is called Akaranakarun. He graces everyone with no demand or expectation in return. He is all kind, all gracious. So we ask the question that if he is requiring us to become surrendered, then is his grace really causeless? It sounds like there is a cause. He's demanding something from us. But then upon further investigation, we came to the understanding that surrender isn't really a condition. It's just the means of receiving God's grace. Just like if someone is giving away an unlimited supply of milk, 
and says, Anyone who wants milk, just come, but bring a container in which to receive it. And you say, Oh, but I don't have a, a container, and you blame that person. You're, you're putting a condition on your milk that I should bring a proper container to receive it. He says, No, there's no condition. I'm not charging anything. I'm giving it away for free, but you have to have a vessel in which to receive that. So the vessel in which God's grace is received is our heart or our antahakaran. That vessel has to be surrendered to God. In other words, surrender is a mental or emotional thing. It's not a physical thing. It's not a verbal thing. We don't become surrendered by saying something or doing something. It's our mind that has to become surrendered. And the moment it's surrendered, we receive His grace. There's no delay from His side. So, in fact, there is no condition on God's grace. But in order to receive and experience that grace, we do have to become surrendered in here. So, surrender of the mind is required. Then the question came, what's preventing us from becoming surrendered? If it's just the mind that has to be surrendered, then let's surrender it right now and receive His grace. Then we learn that the thing that's impeding us from surrendering our mind to God is that our mind is already attached in the world. Udhoji manabhaye das bisa. Gopis told Udhoji that we only have one mind and it's already attached to Krishna. So with what mind do you want us to do uh, this yoga that you're talking about? Uddho had come to teach them about Nirakar Brahm. We'll talk about that later. But anyway, the gopis said, we only have one mind. If it's already attached somewhere, how can we attach it somewhere else? So surrender means attachment of the mind. And if our mind is already surrendered to the world, then how, with what mind are we going to surrender to God? Then I explained more deeply that surrender or attachment happens due to a decision we make. Since we're looking for happiness, wherever we decide that we'll get the happiness, that's where we become attached. Because we start doing chintan of that thing. We think about it more and more, and that process of thinking about it causes us to get attached to it. And that attachment is surrender. So we're always looking to the world for happiness. We decide many times a day that the happiness I'm seeking, I will find in this world. In a thing, in a person, in an achievement, in fame, whatever it may be. We decide many times a day that this thing in the world will give me happiness. So through that constant process that goes on all day, every day, we're just multiplying our worldly attachments. So with what mind will we become surrendered to God? Thus I explained that in order to detach the mind from God, from the world and attach it to God, we have to understand the nature of true happiness and understand that does the world match that nature. 
So I explained that true happiness must be unlimited in amount and should last forever. And then we looked at our own experience in this world and we understood that although we do experience pleasurable things in this world, things we would call happiness, yet none of them last forever and none of them are of an unlimited amount, which is why we're always feeling dissatisfied. Even while we're enjoying the happiness, we wish we had more. So even when we're happy, we're dissatisfied. Then, of course, no happiness lasts forever. So once that happiness ends, then, of course, we're dissatisfied and we're looking for more. We're looking for something else to make us happy. So the worldly happiness doesn't qualify as true happiness. That true happiness is only found in God. Of course, we've never experienced that, so we have to take the word of the scriptures and the saints who tell us, well, you can understand logically as well, there's only three things that exist, right? Brahma, Jeev, Maya. So we've been looking in Maya for this whole life and all of our past lives looking for happiness and we haven't found it there, not the real happiness. So that only leaves one option. We are Jeev. We've exhausted the possibilities in Maya. Only Brahma is left. So it makes sense that if we haven't found perfect happiness in the world, it must be in God. And that's the very thing the saints and scriptures tell us. Your perfect happiness is in God. You want to receive it? You have to attach your mind to God. How will you do that? By thinking again and again. That happiness is not in this, happiness is in God. Happiness is not in this, happiness is in God. The same chintan you did to get attached in the world, you have to do to get attached to God. So I explained in quite some detail about the nature of worldly happiness. I think for almost three days I talked to you about the nature of worldly happiness. And that was necessary so that we could really understand what it is we experience in this world and why it feels like happiness but leaves us wanting more. And how if we want true happiness, we have to start desiring God. So we understood that. We understood that true detachment is from inside, not from outside. I never once told you to leave your family or your job or your life in the world and go to the jungle. I told you that true detachment is from inside and that detachment is developed through correct knowledge about the nature of worldly happiness and the true nature of God. And by thinking about that over and over, Avritti Rasakri Dupadeshat, Brahma Sutra says, think about it again and again and again. Only then the knowledge will go deeply into your heart and you'll start living it. It won't just be a theory. So with this knowledge, we can detach our mind from the world and we're ready to attach it to God. There was one more thing that we covered, which is how a God-realized saint helps us in detaching our mind from the world and attaching it to God. So I explained that a true saint must be God-realized. The true saint has already attained what we want to attain. And such a God-realized saint helps the souls. So I explained to you, according to our scriptures, what is a saint, how to recognize a saint, 
how a saint helps the souls, how we should, uh, how we benefit from a saint. And having understood all of that, we came to the point where I said, now we're ready to understand the actual path to God. Now, although the path to God can only be correctly understood from a God-realized saint, and I am not such a saint, but what I'm going to share with you, I have learned from a God-realized saint. So, the source is authentic, even if I'm not the exactly right person to be telling you this, but I'll do my best to pass on the knowledge in a way that you can uh, practically apply it in your life. So we came up to this point last year, during last year's Akhanda Ramayan Pat here at the Hanuman Mandir. Then I very briefly told you about the three paths to God. But this year I'm going to give you proper detail on the path to God. So, the path to God is the path through which you are able to attach your mind to God or become surrendered to God. That is the path to God. In the Bhagavatam, Sri Krishna says, Yogastraye maya prokta nirinam shreyo vidhitsaya Jnanam karma cha bhaktischa no kutrachit There are only three paths to God. He says there's no fourth path. There never has been nor will there ever be. Karma, jnana and bhakti. The path of action, the path of knowledge and the path of devotion. These are the three paths to God which have always existed and always will exist. So someone may wonder that, how is this possible? In this age when we have new scientific inventions every day of the week, we can't invent another, a fourth way or a fifth way of attaining God? Why since eternity have we only had these three ways to attain God? Can't we invent a new, better way of attaining God? So there's a science behind why we have three ways. God is Sat-Chit-Ananda. We say Sat-Brahma, Chit-Brahma, Ananda-Brahma. These are the three qualities of God. Sat-Chit-Ananda. Sat means eternally existing, eternal life. Chit means divine knowledge, divine mind. And Anand means divine happiness or divine bliss. These are the three eternal qualities of God, or God himself is Sat-Chit Anand. And we are Ansh of Sat-Chit Ananda Brahm. These three paths relate to Sat, Chit, and Anand. The path of karma, the path of action, relates to Sat. The path of knowledge, the path of Jnana, relates to Chit, 
And the path of devotion or bhakti relates to anand. So since these are the three eternal qualities of God and we are anch of that satchidananda brahma, thus there are three eternal paths to God that relate to those three eternal qualities. So this is why we only have the paths of karma, jnana and bhakti and any other path that exists called by any other name, it would fit in one of these three categories. So either it would belong to the category of karma, or it would belong to the category of jnana, or it would belong to the category of bhakti. And along these same lines are Vedas, which are the foundation of all of this knowledge. They're divided into three major sections. Karmakand, Jnanakand, and Upasanakand. Just like we have Karma, Jnan, and Bhakti. Lakshantu Chaturo Veda, Lakshamekam Tu Bharatam. In the Veda it says, that Vedas are so extensive that there are originally 100,000 mantras in the Vedas. Out of that, 80%, meaning 80,000 of those mantras, relate to Karmakand. 14,000 of those mantras relate to Jnanakand. And 6,000 of those mantras relate to Upasanakand or Bhaktikand. As you'll see, this is no indication of the uh, relative value or importance of these paths, but that will become clear later. Today I'm going to start by explaining to you what is the path of karma. See, out of these three paths, karma, jnana, and bhakti, people think that the, the more people are attached in the world, the more they think that the path of karma is for me. Karma is so easy, it just means doing, doing my actions in the world. So, in fact, the path of karma is extremely difficult and involved. What is karma? Karma also means dharma. What is this path? Is it a good path for us? Can it take us all the way to God-realization? We'll understand a little bit about that today. So what is the path of karma? Karma is divided into four types of karma. Nitya karma, naimittik karma, Kamya karma and prayaschitta karma. Four types of good actions. Nitya karma means, this is all Vedic karma, by the way. Things described in the Vedas that a person is supposed to follow and it counts as a good action. So, nitya karma is like depending what your role in society is and how old you are, what stage of your life you're in. There are certain things that you're meant to do every day. Just like a Brahman is supposed to do Sandhya in the morning and evening. They're supposed to offer oblations. It's a ritual they perform, certain uh, mantras and shlokas that they recite at that time. 
It's a nitya karma, something every Brahman is expected to do every day. So depending what your role in society is and what stage of life you're in, you have certain things that are prescribed for you to do every day. This is all described in the Vedas. Vedas and the Smriti Granthas. A little bit in the Puranas and Mahabharata. Not much about all of this in all the other scriptures. Number two, we have Naimittik Karma. Naimittik Karma means occasionally a special event comes in a person's life and then there's another ritual which is prescribed for that particular day or that special event, such as a child being born, giving the child a name, the child's first haircut, the child getting married when they grow up, Another one that we perform when someone dies, Shraddh. So there are different special ceremonies that we perform at certain times. And these are prescribed by the Vedas. And if someone is following the path of karma, they're expected to do all of these. Just like they're expected to do the Nitya karma, they're expected to do the Naimittik karma on those special occasions. The third kind is Pamya karma which means that if someone has a specific worldly desire and they can perform this great Vedic ritual, such as when Dashrat wanted a son, he did Putreshti Yagya, and then he was blessed with Ram as his son. There are certain rituals prescribed for the fulfillment of certain worldly desires, but these rituals are very difficult to perform properly. And then we have number four, prayaschit karma. Prayaschit karma means if you know you've done some kind of sin, you want to atone for that. Then that is also pres- it's prescribed in the Vedas that if you did this particular sin, then uh, do this kind of charity, do this kind of tapasya, uh, do this kind of anushthan, and you will be freed from the effect of that sin. So, all of this is described extensively in the Vedas. These four kinds of karma. But to follow all of this, first of all, takes a lot of study to even know what you're supposed to do. I just gave you in a nutshell. Imagine if you actually had to know and understand, okay, what... What is my nitya karma for every day? What is the naimittik karma I have to perform at certain times? What is the prayaschit if I know I did something wrong? So a lot of studying would be involved. And then to actually observe all of that every day takes a huge commitment. The Vedic yagyas these uh, fire ceremonies which are a big part of this Vaidik karma are shastras say shad sampadyate dharma take a yagya a Vaidik fire ceremony if you're going to perform it properly there are six conditions which must be met at all times these are very uh, strict rules of the Vedas for karmakand. 
not all the paths are this strict, but on the path of karma, it's very strict. If you want it to count as a good action, you have to do it properly. No mistakes. So six conditions must be fulfilled at all times for the proper performance of a Vedic Yajna. One being the place you choose. It's not like our scriptures say for taking God's name. If someone is doing bhakti and they're chanting God's name, then our scriptures say, Nadesha niyamastasmin nakala niyamastatha. You just want to lovingly remember God with no worldly desire, you can take his name anytime, anywhere. No niyam of sthan or kal. But with a Vaivik Yajna, these two things are very important. The place you choose to do it must be pure and you have to purify it in a certain way. And the time that you start and finish that Yajna has to be exactly according to the science of Jyotish, of the Vedas. You can't just do it anywhere or anytime. So it has to be done precisely. Then... All of the dravya, dravya means in that yajna you're going to give charity. So you're going to give money, you're going to give certain things away, and you're also going to offer certain things into the fire like ghee or certain seeds or rice. So all of that dravya which is going to be offered either into the fire or in charity, that has to have been earned according to your dharma. So even that nowadays in Kalyug, think about that. How many people really have pure earnings? But if you could, then you'd be satisfying this third condition of the Vaivik Yajyas. So place, time, the Dravya. The Pandit or Pandits actually to for the proper performance of a Vedic Yajna a minimum of four Pandits are described in the Vedas not that I know all about this this is not uh, I'm not trained in any of this I'm just telling you in gist what Kripaluji Maharaj has taught me about this path of karma so the Pandits who are performing the Yajna also have to be pious hearted Nispriha, Ved says, means not performing it with any ulterior motive, just as a good action. Number five, the mantras being used in that ceremony have to be pronounced exactly right. See, it's not just about, see, every mantra, you could say it has words, and then each word is made up of certain akshar, akshar meaning like a syllable or a sound. But then there are, it's also like a formula, it's a formula. Where you put the stress in the Vedic mantra. Again, Panditji would know much better than I would. I'm not trained in that. But when you recite a Vedic mantra in a yajna, you don't just, it's not like you can just pronounce the word properly. Also, there's a tone and a stress that where do you put the stress in the word? And if you don't stress the word in the right way at the right place, then that becomes like a, you can say, it could ruin the whole thing. See, one time, this is told in Vedas, that uh, there was a Rakshas, 
a demon, he was fighting against Indra. So to get more power so that he could defeat Indra, he was going to perform this yagya. And the yagya was going to give him the strength to defeat Indra. He forcefully brought some rishis and under fear of death, they were made to perform this yagya on his behalf. And the main mantra in that yagya was Indra Shatrur Vivardhasva, which means let the enemy of Indra grow strong and defeat Indra. But it had to be pronounced in the right way. It was meant to be pronounced with Adyudatta, means stress at the beginning of a word, not Antyodatta, which means stress at the end. So this Rakshas, he only knew that it was Indra Shatrur Vivardhasva. He knew what the mantra was. He didn't know, he didn't understand about the the tone and the stress in the in how you're supposed to say it. So the Rishis tricked him. And they pronounced it just by changing where they stressed the word. Not by changing the words. By changing the stress on the words, they got the exact opposite meaning out of the mantra. The way they pronounced it, it meant let Indra grow strong and defeat his enemy. So after the Yajna, God actually appeared and he said, what you have asked for in this yagya, I'm going to grant it to you. And the demon thought, oh, great, great. Then he went out and fought against Indra, and Indra killed him. So as he was lying, dying, he again called to God, oh, God, this is such an injustice. You promised me. We performed this yagya, and you granted me this wish. He said, I granted you exactly what you asked for. And he told him what the rishis had done with that mantra. So that Rakshas said, well, that's the Rishi's fault. They should get punished, not me. He said, no, 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 you are the host of the Yajna. The host gets the result of the Yajna. So it's your problem. So you see the rules of these Vedic rituals for the Karmakan, for the path of Karma, they're very, very strict and difficult to follow. The sixth condition of properly performing these rituals is that the host himself should have faith. That, you know, when you're offering the oblations into the fire, that who you're offering it to, whether it's to Indra or Vayu or Agni, that that Devata is actually here and accepting what you're offering. You should have that Pakta Vishwas. That's the sixth quality or condition. So this is just the Vaidic karma. You also have, you can say, social karma, social good karma, like your duties in the family, your duty to society. You have religious good karma, like doing certain fasting, doing uh, vrat, doing anushthan. So there's so many different kinds of good actions which all together make up the path of karma. Now, if someone could follow that to the T for their whole life, what would they receive? Ved says, Punyena Punyalokam Nayati. Mundakopanishad. You go to Punyalok, which is also called Swarg. 
I explained to you a little bit about Swarg last time, but I'll give you a quick review. Swarg is a real place, which is described in our scriptures, which cannot be accessed from here. So you can't go and scientifically find out that, uh, you know, does Swarg actually exist? You can go to Swarg after you die based on all the good karma you did. So the result of following the path of karma is the attainment of Swarg. Now what is Swarg? Is Swarg synonymous with attaining God? No. Saishanandasya mimansa bhavati yuvasyat sadhu yuvadhyayakah ashishtho dradhishtho balishtho tasyeyam prithvi sarva vittasya purnasyat sa eko manusha anandah te ye shatam manusha anandah sa eko manushya gandharvana manandah ityadi Taittiriya Upanishad gives a big long explanation of what is Swarg. So to help us understand what it's like in Swarg, the description starts here. Taittiriya Upanishad says, understand what is the topmost pleasure of your world that you live in. <clears throat> so the description says, imagine if you were the king or queen of the whole earth. You, were, you alone ruled the whole earth planet. And you were young, healthy, strong, intelligent, educated, generous, good. All of your subjects were favorable towards you. You had a nice, loving family and friends. If you had all of this, you would have the equivalent of one unit of worldly happiness, earthly happiness. Now, start to go into Swarg. Swarg, or the celestial abodes, are broken down into ten major lok, uh, ten major areas or celestial abodes, from lower to higher. So the lowest one, the one directly better than our earth planet, is called Manushyagandharva lok. So if you multiply the happiness that one unit of happiness that I described, which none of us has experienced in this life, multiply that by hundreds of times, and you get the happiness of the lowest celestial abode, the slum of the celestial abodes, Manushyagandharvalok. It would be hundreds of times greater than the greatest happiness of this earth planet. Beyond that is Devagandharvalok, so the happiness of Devagandharvalok is hundreds of times better than the happiness of Manushyagandharvalok. Multiply that happiness by hundreds of times and you have the pleasure of Pitrilok, the third level of Swarg. Multiply the happiness of Pitrilok by hundreds of times and you have the happiness of Ajanajadevalok. Multiply that pleasure by hundreds of times and you have the, the pleasure of Karmadevalok. Multiply that pleasure by hundreds of times and you have the pleasure of Nityadevalok. Multiply that by hundreds of times and you have the pleasure of Indralok. Multiply the pleasure of Indra's abode by hundreds of times and you have the pleasure of Brihaspati Lok. Multiply the pleasure of Brihaspati Lok 
by hundreds of times and you have the happiness of prajapati lok and multiply that pleasure by hundreds of times and you have the pleasure of the topmost celestial abode brahmalok or satyalok the abode of brahma so even though that would be millions and millions of times greater than the greatest pleasure of this earth planet yet it's still limited it's not an unlimited amount of happiness it's limited in amount and it's limited in time shri krishna says in the gita abrahma bhuvana loka punaravartin arjuna Hey Arjun, even those who go to Brahma's abode, they have to come back here on earth. They only get a limited stay over there. So it's like a, a vacation that doesn't last forever. Has any of you ever been on a vacation that lasted forever? No. Your summer holidays don't last forever. When you take a week or two off work, that doesn't last forever. No matter how much you want it to last forever, eventually it ends. You have to come back forever. and start again so in the same way tetam bhuktva swargalokam vishalam chine punye martyalokam vishanti gita you go over there and enjoy but then you come back ramayana says swarga hu swalpa ant dukhdai The pleasure over there is limited for one thing and in the in the end it ends in dukh it ends in unhappiness because you know I have to leave here now I have to go back on earth where things are millions of times worse than they are here where I'm enjoying so much so both ways you're not satisfied even when you're there It's hard to believe but it's true even with millions of times the amount of pleasure that we have here we're still not satisfied because it's not god's happiness it's not unlimited so it doesn't satisfy us just like we envy our neighbors who have more than us over there in swarg also you see oh this other person did more good karma so he earned more pleasure than i have so we even envy our neighbors over there in swarg so we're really no farther ahead by going over there which is why the same vedas that dedicate 80000 mantras to this path of karma the same vedas ोकमीनतरमिषद Even if you go to the highest celestial abode you have to be reborn here on the earth planet and you might not even receive a human birth again right away you might have to take birth in the lower species therefore those who strive to go to swarg they are pramudha the greatest of fools can you imagine same ved dedicates 80000 mantras to telling us what is the path of karma and then after telling us all of that says but if you follow that you're a fool 
गीता सज द सेम यामिमाम पुष्पितां वाचम प्रवदन्त्य विपश्चित वेदवादरता पार्थ नान्यदस्तीति वादिनः हे अर्जुन श्री कृष्ण सज those who listen to speeches where people tell them you have to follow all of this so you can go to swarg they are fools and those who are telling them to do that are also fools ved says kathopanishad says that it's like the blind leading the blind andhe naiva niyamana yathandha those who are telling are blind and those who are following are also blind it's like if someone uh, you know want to come to hanuman mandir tonight and they got off maybe they took a bus to the nearest bus stop and then they got off the bus but they're blind so they asked somebody hey hey does anybody know where is hanuman mandir i can't see somebody please take my hand and walk me to the mandir and let's say there's another blind person in the crowd and he thinks he doesn't know i'm blind oh andhe come on over here grab my hand i'll take you to hanuman mandir and then who knows where they'll end up in this new york traffic could be a bad ending to their story so this is the blind leading the blind according to vedas those who preach about following the path of karma to go to swarg they are blind and those who follow are also blind so we have a samasya we have a a problem here it's a big contradiction the vedas are so respected they're the ultimate authority of sanatan dharma if it's not in vedas we don't accept it and according to these vedas we're seeing such a big contradiction they're telling us about karma that we have to do karma look the same ved is saying kurvanne veha karmani jijivishetcha tagvam samah ishavasya upanishad same upanishad which is saying if you do all of that you're a fool the same one is saying live for 100 years and follow all those guidelines of karma of the vedas in the smritis bhagwan himself in badhul smriti says shruti smriti mamaivagye yast ullanghya vartate Bhagwan says I made those laws of karma which are laid down in the Vedas the do's and don'ts it's my agya it's my instruction to all the souls and those who follow it they're good and those who don't they're acting like my enemy thus follow that in Gita same Gita where Shri Krishna is telling Arjun No 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 that's foolish to follow this path of karma and go to swarg same gita same shri krishna is saying yagya dana tapa karma natyajyam don't leave doing all of that you still have to do that स्वे कर्मण्य भिरतः संसिद्धिम लभते नरः गीता और सुनो Shri Krishna is telling Arjun you can attain perfection by following this path of karma same Gita which says 
See, here in Gita, Shri Krishna is condemning his own Vedas. He says, the teachings of Karmakand of the Vedas keep you within Sattvarajtam, the three qualities of Maya. And Arjuna, I've already told you that true happiness is beyond that. So you have to go beyond those teachings of the Vedas. So we see contradiction after contradiction in Vedas, Upanishads, Gita. So what are we to understand? What are we to uh, follow? Are we to follow the path of karma or are we not to follow the path of karma? So I will solve this problem for you according to our teachings of the Vedas tomorrow.